Unlike the construction projects that energized today's Berlin, 50 years ago a big project was started which tragically cut the city in two. About 13 feet high concrete, then um, right behind it, 30 to 40 feet deep control zone with barbed wire in it and another backup wall so that anyone trying to get through this kind of death zone into West Berlin would get shot. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In a moment, Fabian Ruger explains what building the Berlin Wall did to his city. We'll also meet two Americans who raced a tiny European car all the way from London to Mongolia. The big trucks, you know, like Toyota Land Cruiser, 60 miles an hour, no problem. Fiat Punto, big problem. <laughs> and Christopher Will shares the excitement that a scientific perspective can add to your travels. While you wouldn't want to invite a spiny devilfish home for Thanksgiving, what I try to emphasize is that it and all these other creatures are your relatives. Building the Berlin Wall, running the Mongol Rally, and being a Darwinian tourist. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Some European compact cars are so small they're barely powerful enough to get your grandmother to the grocery store. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll meet two Americans from Seattle who drove one of those little puddle jumpers on a charity road race all across Europe and Central Asia to Mongolia. And biologist Christopher Wills describes the exciting discoveries he finds as a traveler who's also a Darwinian tourist. First, German-born Fabian Reuger joins us to commemorate 50 years since the infamous Berlin Wall was built. We'll talk about the impact the wall had on him and other Berliners who had to live with it for nearly three decades. This year's the 50th anniversary of the building of the Berlin Wall, and it's time to look back on it and learn from that history. And we're joined by Fabian Ruger, who is a Berliner who lived through this story and who today is working on his Ph.D. on the Berlin Wall at Stanford University. Fabian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Fabian, 50 years ago, this year, 1961, the East German government builds this wall. Yes. Tell us why they built it and just describe the, the scene in 1961. The East German government was losing 2,000 people a day in the summer of 1961, running away into free West Berlin to escape from there to Western Europe. And at that rate, clearly the East German communist economy would very soon collapse. Therefore, they had to keep their people from running away and then, in an overnight operation, sealed the entire city of West Berlin off with barbed wire. Must have been an incredible time. Describe the wall physically. Once the city had been surrounded overnight with barbed wire, they started at first building a bricks-and-mortar wall, which was then, month by month and over the years, replaced with a um, about 13 feet high concrete wall. Then, um, right behind it, a 30 to 40 feet deep control zone with barbed wire in it and another backup wall so that anyone trying to get through this kind of death zone into West Berlin would get shot in this death zone. So sort of a cleared-out no-man's land where you, you couldn't even venture into there without being in the sights of the guards. Yes, very much And so. lots of guard towers all the way around. 100 miles long around the city. So it stayed up until 1989, and during that 28 years, quite a bloody history. Yes, many East Germans tried to escape. Nonetheless, some succeeded... Um, we have an estimate today that probably over 1,200 people managed to escape physically through, over, or underneath the Berlin Wall by digging tunnels, by using hand gliders, using ropes. 1,200 um, escaped, that's a, that's a rough estimate. And how many people died? Um, we know that for a fact that at least 120 died. Um, now, the odds sound good, but you have to remember that many East Germans get arrested before they even get to make an escape attempt ah. over the Berlin Wall. So the number of attempts is much, much higher than uh, those two numbers combined. So you said 1,200 went over, through, or under the wall in those 28 years. What was yes. the most common way to escape? What was the easiest way to get out of there? In the first years, the East German regime had no way to find out whether you were digging a tunnel from a house nearby West Berlin. And so tunnel digging became pretty much a Berlin sport. West Berliners often had to help digging those tunnels. In fact, most tunnels were dug by West Berliners for their East German and East Berlin friends. Uh, the East German regime, you see, they couldn't check whether you were digging a tunnel, but they could check whether you were buying shovels. So these things were under very tight control of the East German security system, and therefore West Berliners often helped by digging tunnels for the East German relatives. Wow. So somebody goes down to the hardware store, buys four shovels. Exactly. You, you're on a list. You're on a list, and you might be watched. Now, if you want to learn more about the escape attempts in Berlin, where do you go? You would go to the uh, museum at Checkpoint Charlie, which is really the museum for escape attempts in Berlin. It's and, an incredible museum. Yes, and a cool thing about the Checkpoint Charlie Museum 
it captures the euphoria on that day, November 9, 1989. The, the excitement when suddenly nobody even anticipated it. The wall's down. Yes. In fact, I lived in West Berlin at the time. I went to bed that evening, not anticipating anything. And then about 1.30 at night, my phone rings and a good friend calls and says, we should go out now. And I, of course, had no idea what was going on. So I said, why should I go out now? It's 1.30 at night. And he said, didn't you hear? The wall has just opened up. And I, th- I had actually seen the East German press conference on television in which they announced that soon they might allow East Germans to travel. And so at that point, the general media anticipation had been that in a few weeks these Germans would be able maybe to travel. So I said to my friend, I think you got that wrong. I watched television in the afternoon and they uh, were pretty sure that this would take a couple of weeks for the wall to open. And my friend lost his patience at this moment with me and said, turn on the bloody television. <laughs> They're dancing on top of the wall. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, it sounds to me like a, like a human equivalent of a flood, a water flood. A little trickle first and then boom, it just can't be stopped. It is an incredible story. That night, the East Germans, right after this press conference, the demonstrators on the street pretty much decided that the East German government, if they're already allowing in a couple of weeks, why not right now? And they suddenly went to the border control stations and basically forced the wall open. So when you think about visiting Berlin today, of course, you go to Checkpoint Charlie to see the the history of the escape attempts and the building of the wall and the day it came down. What survives of the wall actually today, this former 100-mile, I love this name, anti-fascist protective rampart? <laughs> it made everyone laugh at yeah, the time. It's so ridiculous that anybody would believe that. What survives today of the wall if you actually want to see some of the wall? Of the over 100 miles, there is about altogether one mile left standing in its original. Because in the euphoria, they were just tearing it down like mad. And probably finally somebody said, hey, wait a minute, for history's sake, let's, let's save just a little bit of it. Right. It was probably the most hated building construction thing in Berlin. And so between 1989 and 1999, most of it was taken down. Tell me about this phenomenon of the wall peckers. Well, initially, as the wall opens, almost 24 hours within, East Germans started hacking at the wall to really destroy it. And then, of course, everyone who realized who was in Berlin at the time that this was really history happening, and people already started deciding, taking little pieces out of the wall for themselves to keep as a souvenir. So what was initially meant as a destruction of the wall became a souvenir hunt. And uh, then, of course, the whole thing also became very good business. So the city of Berlin has enough concrete left and sells pieces to this day. And there's now little bits of concrete that probably have nothing to do with the wall that are painted like with graffiti. And then they go, here, you want to piece of the wall? The concrete is still original. A hundred miles of concrete wall is a lot of concrete. I guess that's true. But the uh, color you get onto these little pieces is, of course, often sprayed on afterwards. What is it called? The East Side Gallery? Yes, that's one of the longest strips of the wall that's still original. And it's actually and still allowed for people to go paint their graffiti on it? it? It was meant as an art project. It was the last long strip of wall we had in, in Berlin. And the mayor decided that artists should be hired, each be given a couple of square feet to put a piece of art on there. Artists from over 100 countries it's in the world. It's a fascinating walk. It's yes. a long walk, and you've got graffiti artists all the way along. And it's some quite nice, powerful, political, edgy art. It's wonderful. <laughs> Fabian, take us to Berlin today, and how can we enjoy this city in transition as it knits itself quite effectively back together? The city of Berlin has at least done one remarkable thing to keep a reminder to the Berlin Wall and the city's division. They have built a memorial line to the Berlin Wall, along the stretch where the wall ran. So often you can cross in the streets of Berlin a line of bricks laid to the tar running across the street sometimes. So the entire circle of where the wall stood is now memorialized with embedded bricks around the town. Yes. You can walk along the wall and take a look at the eastern and western side, and you can often, I mean, in most cases, no longer tell the difference. And ugly as the wall was, part of the wall was along the Spree River, the river that cuts through Berlin. Today there's nothing ugly about the Spree River. Oh, no. It's also where the German parliament is standing. The wall really ran right by the traditional German parliament building, the Reichstag. And Potsdamer Platz was the Times Square of Europe in the 1920s, I believe. Then, suddenly, no man's land. And then today, once again, incredible office park. And fantastic new architecture. Um, Buildings by Rehm Kohlhaas, skyscrapers. Fabian, when you think of the Brandenburg Gate in the context of the whole wall experience, the Brandenburg Gate to me is such a symbol of, of Germany. What are moments in the Brandenburg Gate's history as part of the whole wall story? 
there's, I would say, three images that come to mind to me immediately. The first is Napoleon riding into Berlin triumphantly in 1806 through the Brandenburg Gate, taking the city of Berlin and actually greeted by the Berliners as a kind of French liberator who would bring uh, French democracy, which he then didn't, and that made the French then very unpopular in Berlin. History played out simply differently. The second image is uh, during John F. Kennedy's famous visit to Berlin. He drives by the Brandenburg Gate together with German Chancellor Adenauer and the West Berlin mayor. They drive up to the gate. The wall has already been built. And the East German communist regime does not want John F. Kennedy to look through the Brandenburg Gate into East Berlin. So they hung long communist banners down the gate so he couldn't look through it. That's on uh, numerous famous photos. And then, of course, the third set of images that remind everyone of the Brandenburg Gate is the people dancing on the wall in front of it on the night of November 10 to 11, 1989, when the wall opens up. Tell me about the Pink Floyd concert. Pink Floyd played at the uh, Berlin Wall after it had opened, but I remember most famously, in 1987, the city of Berlin celebrated its 750th anniversary, and on that occasion, there was a major rock concert and right at the Reichstag, which happens to be near the Berlin Wall. And that concert happened on, of course, the West Berlin side, and in East Germany, many people wanted to listen to that concert, so they tried to get as close to it as possible. Uh, there were a number of bands playing. Genesis was playing, David Bowie was playing, Eurythmics were playing. And uh, I was actually at that concert, having no idea that just a mile from me, on the other side of the Spree River in East Germany, East Germans, young East Germans of my age, were arrested trying to listen to that concert and shouting for it actually to be opened up the wall to be opened up so this, this is two years over. before the wall was this opened. is just two years before you have the wall all these opens. great bands playing in the west on the wall attracting young people all over east berlin to come against that yeah. as a berliner everybody has different ideas about ronald reagan but as a berliner when reagan declared gorbachev tear down this wall what do you think to be honest when i lived in west berlin at the time i thought this is going to go nowhere. I thought this would never happen. So I thought it was an illusionary demand, not knowing, of course, that East Germany was already in its foundations shaking. It wasn't really up to Mr. Gorbachev at this point to open up the wall. He had already signaled to the East Germans that he really didn't want that thing there anymore anyhow. But uh, the East German government had dug in and uh, behaved quite Stalinist at the point and declared that same summer after Reagan's speech that the wall would be standing there for at least another 100 years. Of course, we know that was not the case. Well, 50 years later, we all have a lot to be thankful for that that ugly wall is now history. Fabian Ruger, thanks so much for joining us and giving us a little angle on the Berlin Wall from the perspective of a Berliner. Thank you for having me. All in all it was all just breaks in the wall Brian and Christine endured one of the craziest road races in the world. They drove 10,000 miles across Europe and the dodgiest parts of Central Asia in a charity road race to help fund Mercy Corps projects in Mongolia. They tell us how they did it in a car they claim had about as much power as a hairdryer. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Over the years, we've enjoyed a lot of road trips with our guests, but we are in for the ultimate road trip right now. Brian Schrader and Christine Estrada, both from Seattle, finished the Mongol Rally, which is 10,000 miles driving in a jalopy from Europe to Mongolia. <laughs> the rules are you got to use a car your granny would use for shopping. 
and they all do it to raise money for local charities. Brian and Christine, thanks for driving all the way to our studios. (laughs) Thank you for having us. After driving from London to Mongolia, everything must seem like child's play after that. (laughs) Definitely, yeah. We took some road trips last year. The adventurists who put this on had an event in Boulder, and we just had like a weekend. So we drove straight out there. It was like a 24-hour drive, and we're like, oh, it's so brutal. And now I'm like, oh, that was fun. (laughs) Well, it is relative, isn't it? Now, how many teams participate in in this Mongol rally? They say there were about 500 teams, I believe, this year, a majority from Europe. And they're leaving from London? There were three departure points. The largest one is in London. They also leave from Barcelona and Milan before meeting up near Prague. And the idea is to raise money for different charities. Yeah. There are three main charities that the adventurists support, and the one that both of our teams chose was Mercy Corps. And how long did it take to make this 10,000-mile drive? It took between six to seven weeks. I think it was the same. Yeah, we were the same. Six weeks from departure to ending in Ulaanbaatar. Brian, take us through the route. You start in London, and was there one set route, or, or how do people go? No, every team chooses their own route, so that's definitely part of the fun, uh, deciding you know, a year in advance, oh, well, you know, what do we want to see? And our team, we started out thinking we definitely wanted to go to Iran. And um, after the election in June, we thought, no, nah, maybe that's not such a great idea. It doesn't look stable. But we <laughs> that put us on the path to Turkey, and none of us had been to Turkey before, so... We were really excited about that. And so that sort of determined our course. So you drove basically across former Yugoslavia through Greece and through Turkey, and then you had to move north, skirting Iran. Right. We went through Georgia and Azerbaijan, taking a ferry across the Caspian Sea to Turkmenistan. Wow. What kind of car did you have? Our team had two 2007 Fiat Puntos. That's a little five-door hatchback, (laughs) 1.2-liter engine. And what were the uh, challenges just from a mechanical point of view when you take a just a basic town car, our little car, literally across Eurasia? Yeah. The, the first things that you worry about are suspension. You don't have very much clearance. And then just cars that are basically meant to, you know, go around town handling roads that are <laughs> non-existent in a lot of places. Well, talking about roads, Christine, tell me about what the roads were like then. I mean, how do they vary from country to country? You know, when we started, obviously we started in London. We drove through most of Europe, and the roads were fantastic. Autobahn city, Beautiful. My goodness, your Autobahn memories were probably like fantasies when you're in the middle of the Turkmenistan or something. Exactly. (laughs) It was us driving as far to the right as we possibly could, all jealous of all the Audis, the, the BMWs just flying by like over 100 miles an hour. But the roads through all of Europe were fantastic. Okay. And then all of a sudden, they started, you know, deteriorating when we got into Azerbaijan. So it's good through Turkey. Turkey was not too bad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we got across the Caspian and then into Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan roads. It was more pavement, got pretty crazy, lots of potholes. Kazakhstan was probably the worst place that we encountered but uh, would you have, roads. would you have chosen with local advice or your maps or guidebooks or whatever the best possible road through uh, Uzbekistan? Or... Not really. That was kind of the, the fun <laughs> of it, right? It was like encountering some of these things and driving in places that you weren't meant to drive. Well, in a lot of the places, there's a map, and you don't really know if one road is better than the other. There, there's a line. But we found a lot of the places they were doing road work anyway, so it didn't matter. Even if the the freeway next to you was a beautiful paved road, here we are on the, the dirt path next to it that we were forced to pull off onto along with all of these massive trucks that are just creating depressions that you have to follow behind. So in your worst, most difficult days of driving, how many miles would you hope to get under your belt in a day? Oh, boy. What was the longest day on the worst roads? Mongolia, there just isn't a road. When you're driving through the Gobi Desert, it turns into this. Everybody calls it the cat tracks or the washboards. And it's the perfect width for the diameter of a 14-inch Fiat to just rattle your car apart. The big trucks, you know, like, you know, Toyota Land Cruiser, 60 miles an hour, no problem. Fiat Punto, big problem. You're stuck in the washboard. So a washboard. Literally, (laughs) you're just shaking like mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what kind of toll does that take on your little car after a while? On our car, we, we felt pretty fortunate to make it to Mongolia without any major mechanical problems. We had, you know, some flat tires, ironically, mostly Mm -hmm. in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we bottomed out several times despite oil pan protection. We punched a hole in the oil pan Mm -hmm. in the middle of the Gobi Desert and that stopped us for several hours. We got a tow to a town. We patched it up with some magic epoxy 
and and found somebody that was willing to give us oil <laughs> and we made it to the next town but at that point we said this car's done it's going on a truck going to UB we'll we'll <laughs> meet it we'll meet it there <laughs> now forgive me for saying this but you two look like a couple of rank amateurs when it comes to dri- <laughs> driving across the Gobi desert i mean Christine, talk about driving in the middle of the desert in Asia. It was amazing, especially in Mongolia. You get to this country where there are absolutely no roads. It's basically dirt paths people have taken to get places. And you're sitting in the middle of the Gobi. You can see everything around you. There's there's nothing. I mean, there's not even, you know, no villages, no people. It's just desert as far as you can see. And you think... Uh, well, I sure hope we don't break down here or we're going to be in really big trouble. <laughs> right. You know, the washboards, we were caravanning with a couple of people. And one of the cars that I was in, we would kind of switch people off just to keep it, you know, keep it fun. And one of the cars I was in, we shook the car so badly on the washboards that we actually broke the radiator fan in the car. It shook the fan loose. And then when the fan started, the the actual fan blade bent into the radiator housing and that was pretty much the end of, of the car. They had to take it into a town and try to get it fixed. So that was kind of, you know, the fun of driving on, on these, these crazy roads. Across this area, what we call the stands, you know, where you have mm-hmm. crummy roads and, and all sorts of chaos, are people creative in their auto mechanics? I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of improvisation that goes on. You don't have the parts for everything. Definitely. I mean, we saw lots of things fixed with bubble gum, with <laughs> uh, string, with all kinds of, you know, unique and interesting ideas. We had this stuff called rescue tape, <laughs> which I, I think Brian's team had as well, yep. which was basically the sticky tape that was supposed to, you know, stick to everything, withstand all kinds of heat, and you could just wrap stuff up with it. Yeah, we, we determined, to solve a lot of problems. We determined that our exhaust line definitely exceeded 500 degrees Fahrenheit because rescue tape did not hold it together. <laughs> rescue tape doesn't work over no. 500 degrees. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Brian Schrader and Christine Estrada, who have completed what must be the world's ultimate road trip. Driving from London all the way to Mongolia, 10,000 miles in 45 days, in a basic car that you'd take down to the grocery store. How do you measure success and victory? Is it literally a race, or what's the deal? Definitely not a race. I think for legal reasons, they can't advertise it that way. We really just wanted to finish. And, you know, you'd be surprised a lot of teams don't make it. I think a lot of teams don't set out to make it. <laughs> They're just out to have a good time. We, we, I think we felt pride in finishing. And we were really looking to raise a lot of money for Mercy Corps. And we set a very aggressive goal. And so we were doing all of that despite any other hardship that we faced really made it worth it. How do you raise money in something like this? I mean, did you just ask people to support you that way? Yeah, we had several events beginning more than a year before we left. We had silent auctions. We had dinners. What does Mercy Corps do in Mongolia that makes it worth driving all the way from London to Ulaanbaatar? They support rural people. They perform education, basic education that the government is really not able to. It's a young government there. What was a great feeling to drive through Mongolia, we would come into a city And we would see some signs at the outskirts of the city that would say this project has been funded by Mercy Corps with funds from the Mongol rally. And they would have information on the signs that you could see. And so as we were coming through, you know, we would see these signs and think, wow, this is great. That just a good reminder that what we were doing is helping, you know, a lot of the communities and all these people that we were seeing in in the towns. Was any of the money donated on the condition that you actually got to Mongolia with your car? (laughs) No. (laughs) So that's good. Yeah, that was good. And what happened to your car when it was all done? Our car actually was auctioned pretty quickly. Our car surprisingly did very well for us on, on the trip and showed up in Ulaanbaatar in, in very good shape. And then and you just sold it in, in Mongolia. Yeah, it was turned in. And you didn't, didn't want to drive it all the way back. <laughs> right, no, <laughs> no way. About two days after we got to Ulaanbaatar, we, we saw our car driving on the streets and we saw it. We we're like, wait, that's our <laughs> that's car. That's our car. <laughs> and so it did get auctioned and it looked like it was some locals that had bought it through the auction event that they have, which was great. You mean that was more fundraising? Yes. So then huh. that money Good. that the car gets auctioned for is donated also to Mercy Corps for charity. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're on the ultimate road trip. We're driving a jalopy from London to Mongolia with Brian Schrader and Christine Estrada from Seattle. You guys did this trip in like 45 days, raised a lot of money for Mercy Corps, and learned a lot about the world and probably mm-hmm. fixing cars at the same time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. What kind of support teams and so on were going along to help the different uh, race cars? <laughs> there was pretty much no support. You were on your own. That was kind of part of the 
if you could call it a rule of the rally. So four or five hundred teams, like amateurs. you, like you two, yeah. amateurs. This is an amateur. Yep. Leave Europe, and nobody knows where you are. You just there's three or four different ways to get there. I mean, right. you can choose. So how did you do the navigation? Did you have any sort of <laughs> maps, guidebooks, or just kind of cross a border and work your way across that next country? Yeah, it was old school maps. Yeah. Old school That's maps, for sure. Yeah. Like we looked at getting a GPS system, but we found that most of the countries that we were traveling through weren't even mapped on GPS. And the best luck we had was just good old-fashioned maps. Either a map or a lot of talking to locals. It puts you in communication with people very quickly. I, I was reading the rules at the mongorally.com is the website, or you can go to Wikipedia under mongorally, and they said the rules of a participating car, it should generally be considered crap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is, are there any rules for what kind of car you can do? They just want you to take a funky car. The, the major requirement is that the engine be no larger than 1.2 liters. And there are some stipulations and ways you can get around that, but it seems like most people stuck to the spirit of the rally and mm-hmm. did that. And trying to get around those rules was a hassle anyway. If you had a Hummer, it would kind of take the challenge off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did it cost you? How was your budget on this? Uh, budget was mostly we had to set aside money for the car, which we bought in the U.K. because obviously you cannot find 1.2 liter cars here in the States. You had a lot of gas expenses. That's correct. We had gas. What do you figure it cost you just from a gas point of view to drive all the way? Did you keep track of that? Yeah, we budgeted out beforehand with estimates for each country and we were still underestimating. Turkey turned out to be, gas was something like 11 like or $12, $12 a gallon. $12 a gallon. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Now the, the, then, the stands are gas producing countries, aren't they? Some of them are. Turkmenistan's incredibly cheap. You pay a gas tax when you enter. Even with that, it's still really affordable. Like a buck but, a gallon or something? Or you uh, 20 cents a gallon. I think it 20 was cents like a 20, gallon. 30 cents yeah. a gallon. Ballpark, what did it cost from a gas point of view to get all the way? You know, our original estimate was something like $2,000, like and we went over that. So, but that was for two cars, so yeah. So around a couple thousand bucks Maybe for the gas. And then what so. was your daily uh, budget just for eating and sleeping? And, and generally, how did you do that? Were you sleeping out or in hotels or what? We started, when we started in Europe, we did quite a few hotels and bed and breakfasts in uh, around the London area. And then once we got on the road, we did a lot of camping, a lot of just, you know, toss the tent in the middle of a field wherever you can find, find a couple other teams. Towards the end of the rally, we stayed in a few hostels in Mongolia area. Slept I think, in the car uh, several times. Yeah, well, <laughs> slept on the beach a few times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the scariest or most dangerous uh, situation you found yourself in? You know, I, th- I think there were times where We anticipated, you know, camping out being dangerous, but it never was. I mean, people were so hospitable and friendly. I never felt at danger just Hmm. really camping out. The the time I felt most at risk was in Azerbaijan under the threat of corrupt police. We were just getting pulled Mm -hmm. over all the time. And there was one two-hour stretch. This cop pulled us aside into a restaurant and was trying to separate us from Gene on our team, which was very sketchy. And he didn't come out with the bribe threat right away. Uh, it did come around after a couple hours. So he was making you uncomfortable, but you never had to bribe you. Oh, no, we had to pay that guy. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, eventually we did, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's unfortunate. Generally, from a sightseeing point of view, what, what impressed you most? You know, I have to say, like, I was very surprised. We did a short stint of driving through Serbia, southern Serbia. It was absolutely beautiful, mountains, Mm. great landscape. And Russia was amazing in the Altai region, just beautiful, like the mountains and the snow into Mongolia, just amazing. I I think those are probably some of the the most beautiful places that we saw on the trip. In Uzbekistan, between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, there is what used to be uh, one of the largest seas in the world. And there are two rivers that feed it that the Russians have been diverting for irrigation to plant cotton fields for decades. And the sea has just been retreating. So we we drove up to this town called Moynak, and there's a monument there at what used to be like the port. And you look down, there's this huge cliff that drops off, and there are these sand dunes now, and there are these uh, ships just sitting there amongst the dunes. It's really weird, totally surreal. It sounds surreal. Like big vessels, high and dry. Yeah, fishing ships. No hint of, of any water. A port that is high and dry. Completely. The sea is hundreds of miles away at this point. Okay, long trip, 10,000 miles. You finally get to the finish line. What was it like? It was a little anticlimactic. <laughs> it was, actually. <laughs> it was so challenging just getting through Russia, Siberia, across Mongolia, and 
then you're in this big, dirty city. You're stuck in traffic. <laughs> and we, we arrived at week six. There apparently are parties, arrival parties. But the week six party is sort of like everybody's kind of done. And we pulled in and we parked <laughs> our car and nobody heaped praise upon us. You know, we, we were very happy to be done, but it was sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to yeah. get on the plane tomorrow. <laughs> we like, drove 10,000 miles for yeah. this, you know, yeah. come on. Oh, well, I think you had a party going on inside of your spirit. And, of course, you raised a lot of good <laughs> money for Mercy Corn. I'm sure they're thankful for that. Definitely. Yeah. Brian Schrader, Christine Estrada, World Road Trip Adventures. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck in your future travels. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. You can find photos of the Mongol Rally online at theadventurists.com. And there's a video that shows some of the projects the race supports in Mongolia. It's at mercycorps.org. We have links to these sites in the show details of the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next, meet the Darwinian tourist, who's actually an expert in biodiversity at UC San Diego. He explains how, from deep-sea coral reefs to the tops of the Andes, you can connect your own life with the rest of the planet and travel a little bit like Darwin did. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are a few recent examples we thought you'd enjoy. Jana Lee lives in Portland, Oregon, and teaches English in South Korea. She wrote this haiku as a snapshot of a moment in Korea. Shoes at the threshold, socks shuffle across the floor, cross-legged with friends. B.J. Anderson, from Sayo, Oregon, writes this about Mongolia. Roads leading nowhere, a cartographer's nightmare, my dream vacation. Gene Andrianoff, from Port Ludlow, Washington, describes the scene at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. A saffron-clad monk and eyes carved in ancient stone watch the setting sun. Lynn Jacobs McDonald of Bakersfield, California went to Burma's ancient Golden Pagoda, the most sacred site in the country. Shwedagon, ablaze in gold, saffron robe monk ask, change money? And Gay Amend of Fresno, California sends us this pair of poems. The innkeeper's wife Unspent love in her fingers sews on my button. Children road weary, a grandmother's lullaby needs no translation. <laughs> It's Travel with Rick Steves. When Christopher Wills looks at a plant or a fish or a rock, he sees things you and I would probably miss. He's a professor of biological sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Some of the books he's authored include the bestseller The Runaway Brain, The Evolution of Human Uniqueness, and Children of Prometheus. His latest book is called The Darwinian Tourist, Viewing the World Through Evolutionary Eyes. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Rick. I was trying to get my brain around this. Your book is it's both a textbook and a travel guide and uh, a celebration of life on the planet. It's a mix of biology and anthropology. Help me out with that. Yeah, what I do for a living, actually, is link these things together. As an evolutionary biologist, I'm interested in the evolution of all the organisms on the planet, including ourselves. And what I've tried to do in this book is knit together this story in such a way that somebody who visits some part of the planet can look around and say, wow, this is how it works. And the book is a kind of primer for looking at the world in this really cosmic kind of way. It's like taking science on the road, really. Indeed it is. When I read it, it's, and I mean this in a complimentary way, it feels like a textbook. Is this a textbook that you teach from? Oh, gosh, no. I do, in fact, use some of the uh, examples and some of my photography in my classes. If you read this book, you've had a class in developing a lens for seeing evolution in action as you travel around the world. It's, it's like having a, a special lens in your travels. 
Well, indeed, the lenses are twofold. First of all, I've taken a lot of pictures that I use to illustrate the book, and I think the great fun from my standpoint has been to to nail these creatures as they're doing something interesting and as they're doing something that really contributes to the themes I want to develop. The second lens is to look beyond that and to ask, how did these creatures get to the way they are? Why are they there? How are they interacting with each other? What are the things that we can learn about them and learn about the whole world? Now, you write, when you learn how to view your world through evolutionary eyes, all will appear immensely richer. How is it of practical value to a traveler? Well, to take an example, I start off the book by uh, taking the reader on a scuba dive in a particularly interesting part of Indonesia, where we've spent a good deal of time meeting some very strange creatures indeed, like a spiny devilfish and creatures like that. Now, while you wouldn't want to invite a spiny devilfish home for Thanksgiving, what I try to emphasize is that it and all these other creatures are your relatives. They really are a part of the living world, and we have many, many connections between them. I then tunnel down beneath this and ask, how did these relationships happen? How did they arise? What is the history of the creatures that you see around you as you're scuba diving? You take us to all different environments, whether scuba diving in Indonesia, uh, hanging out with wolf cubs in Mongolia. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, that was a bit of serendipity, really. Uh, We know that Eastern Asia... About 15,000 years ago, it was one of the sites where wolves were probably first domesticated. They were domesticated in the Middle East and in Eastern Asia. And it was astonishing that we happened to be at a place in Western Mongolia where a boy in one of the local villages had just found a wolf cub and had brought it into the village. And this cub, cute little fella, was determinedly chewing on a bone that he'd been given. And if you got very close to him, he would certainly uh, bite a piece out of you. (laughs) Now, this must have been rather like the sequence of events that first happened when dogs began to be domesticated. A wolf cub would be brought home. Most of the cubs bit everybody in sight. But every once in a while, you'd find one that was a little friendlier, a little bit less savage. And those cubs and their babies would be gradually adopted into the group of humans and began to serve extremely useful purposes. And it was this beginning in which we're in uh, sped-up time, recapitulating uh, natural evolutionary change through artificial selection, we can begin to see how we have changed the world by harnessing evolutionary processes. So it's interesting to me, you know, a historian will travel and see the world through a certain lens, Uh, a chef will see the world a certain way, a musician, and... Evolutionary biologist. An evolutionary Mm -hmm. biologist. It must be striking to you how one tourist can walk through one scene and be clueless to all the evolutionary excitement going on, and another traveler can walk through that, and it can be a dream come true for his sightseeing interest. Well, this has a lot to do with the backgrounds of the tourists. If you've not thought about these things, then sure, you won't won't know what's going on. If you've never had biology in high school or in college, then it really is just a blank. It's just creatures that you're being introduced to, and they are more or less interesting, but you don't really go beyond that point. Given that background, which I've tried to give you a little bit in the book, and I would encourage people who read the book to go further and read many, many other things about biology and about evolution, if you do that, then when you look at these creatures, suddenly it becomes more real. Suddenly the stories that you've read about, the stories that you've heard about, become far more three-dimensional or four-dimensional. So it's a plot. It's almost like a a story unfolding before your eyes in geological time frame. You got adaptation, you got competition, you got cooperation. As you look at nature, do you actually see these plots? Do you know where where you're at in the story? You do indeed. As you examine a complex ecosystem, and I've spent a lot of my scientific life looking at that, you begin to realize how the different organisms all work together. And I take the reader into some of these complicated ecosystems, uh, rainforests, coral reefs, and I explain how the organisms interact in such a way that no one organism can conquer the ecosystem. They're kept in check by other organisms. Those other Hmm. organisms may be predators, they may be parasites or pathogens. The interaction between different organisms produces this astonishing balance of life. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about traveling as a Darwinian tourist, viewing the world through evolutionary eyes. That's the title of Christopher Will's new book, The Darwinian Tourist. Christopher, take me to the desert in the southwest of the United States. What might I see with the proper background that somebody else might not see from a sightseeing point of view? Well, first of all, of course, the whole southwestern U.S. is geology-made visible. You can see the bare bones of the planet, and you can see how the planet is formed. You can see how geological strata have been laid down, how some strata have been removed by erosion and new ones laid on top of them. You know, you, you must have that background. You must have that uh, context in which you can then see how different animals and plants have adapted. So if, for example, you go to the northern and southern rims of the Grand Canyon, you'll find different squirrels living there. They're closely related, but the Kaibab and the Ebert squirrel are distinctly different from each other. And they are because they have been separated during the 10 million years or so that the Grand Canyon has been formed. I see. So you know that they're related, but you also know that they're distinct, and you know why they're distinct. Indeed you do. It's possible to look now at their genes, find out how the genes have changed. We're learning so much at the genetic level, about how evolution has taken place. I don't think anyone has looked in detail at these squirrels, Mm -hmm. but people have looked in detail at a lot of other creatures that are close relatives of each other to see how the process of speciation has taken place. And humans and chimpanzees were a fine example of this. Uh, Our ancestors separated perhaps six or seven million years ago, but it looks as if that separation took a little while. It may have uh, taken a million years or more for that separation to take place, during which time genes went back and forth. And we can begin to see that because we can look at the entire suite of genes that humans have and the entire suite that chimpanzees have. An amazing story. I was fascinated by your discussion as plants and animals as hitchhikers. Well, that's something that goes back to Darwin and and even before. Darwin was the first, I think, to really talk in detail about how different plants and animals can hitchhike around the planet. Many seeds, as you know, stick to things. They could stick beautifully to animals' fur or to the feathers of birds. And, of course, if a seed sticks to a bird that flies across an entire ocean, then that seed could easily travel from one continent to another. That is something that Darwin realized was hugely important in explaining why it is that oceanic islands can suddenly blossom with all kinds of plants, and then those plants can begin to evolve in their own direction. I don't talk about this in the book, but there is one island in the Galapagos Islands, for example, where the cactus plants have, instead of having hard spines, their spines have become soft Hmm. because there are no insect pollinators on the island, and so the cactus plants depend on birds to pollinate them, and the birds don't like to sit on spiny cactuses. So here is a situation in which some rather frantic evolution had to take place in order for the cactus-bird evolution to take place. Now, in your travels, clearly you're inspired by Darwin, what are the best places to connect with the man, Charles Darwin? Well, Darwin, of course, did his giant trip around the world, and if you go to South America, where he spent most of his time on his famous voyage, everywhere you go, particularly in the southern part of South America, you will see things that he talked about in his wonderful book, The Voyage of the Beagle, and there is where you can make really strong connections, I think, Mm -hmm. not just in the Galapagos Islands, but many other places as well. Now, in London, you've got almost a shrine to Darwin at the big uh, Natural Science Museum. Indeed, and of course you have Darwin's house on the outskirts of London as well, so it's really quite a shrine, a, a, a pilgrimage place, if you like. I remember in the, in the grand hall of that museum, Darwin sits like as if on a throne up on an altar overlooking all of the beautiful things that are displayed in that magnificent museum. Well, I think paying homage to Darwin in those circumstances is a very sensible thing to do. I pay homage in the book in a couple of situations. At one point, I was caught in an earthquake. I was scuba diving off the island of Yap, and while I was diving, I got hit by an earthquake, which was much stronger under the water than it was above. It really threw me around. And when I got to the surface, I found that there wasn't much that people felt on the ground. But I then, in the chapter, go on from that and ask, what would Darwin have thought? Of course, Darwin was caught in a very similar situation. He was hit by an earthquake in Chile in 1835, and 175 years later, almost to the day, another earthquake hit exactly that area of Chile. Now, Darwin realized that earthquakes, repeated earthquakes like the ones in Chile, are strong enough, 
when summed over millions of years to do amazing things like build up entire mountain chains. Hmm. And this is what gave him the time to really think about evolution, to be able to say, we've got hundreds of millions of years here, an awful lot can happen. This totally expanded and changed the way everybody looked at the world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Christopher Wills, and he's the author of The Darwinian Tourist. Christopher, you know, a lot of Christians are offended by Darwin. What's your understanding of Darwin's belief in God? I think Darwin had initially a fairly conventional belief in God. I think that his view of God changed, and that I wouldn't be surprised if he had a far more holistic view of God after his travels and after uh, spending so much time thinking about evolution and biology. His wife was a far more uh, conventional Christian, and I think she kept Darwin grounded in that, in the sense that he had to at least pay lip service to religious ideas of the time. But I don't think of Darwin as a particularly religious person. I do think, however, that he had a religious view, a, a view of the world that was illuminated by his own understanding of how the world works. And it was that illumination that led him to all his remarkable discoveries about natural selection, sexual selection, many, many other things, the appearance of coral atolls in the middle of the ocean, mm -hmm. all these things that Darwin uh, understood fully for the first time. This was really, I think, a very untransformative way of looking at the world, and I don't think religion played a very large part in it. No, that. I think my sense is um, he probably gained an appreciation of God the closer he got to nature, and he developed this love of nature by studying it and learning about putting the pieces together to better understand evolution. I think that's a fair statement. When I was in Costa Rica, I was just fascinated by the churning metabolism of biology there, so complex, so dense, so fragile. What is your thought about traveling to a place like that? How can you get the most out of it? Well, I was just in a place rather like that, Guiana, in the uh, northern part of South America. It used to be British Guiana, and it is now an independent country. A country with a vast extent of untouched rainforest, filled with fascinating creatures. There are jaguars there, uh, all kinds of things that are becoming much rarer in other parts of South America. In one evening's walk, one night's walk, we stumbled on different animals that had migrated, or their ancestors had migrated to South America, over a span of probably a hundred million years. Hmm. And looking at these different animals and how they changed and how they'd interacted gave me a vivid notion of how the flora and the fauna of uh, this vast area had come to be. Because you had the basis to understand and put all that together. Precisely. And that would be the goal. Is that reasonable for, you know, the reasonably educated person that's not very well versed in this? You can read The Darwinian Tourist and then actually wander through a rainforest or a tropical jungle and put these wonderful little pieces of the puzzle together. I certainly hope. Everybody can do it. We can all be Darwinian tourists, and indeed we all should be. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Wells, his new book, The Darwinian Tourist, Viewing the World Through Evolutionary Eyes. Christopher, when you travel, you can't help but stumble into things that relate to climate change. Talk a little bit about climate change and evolution. Change can take many, many different shapes, and perhaps the most insidious one, and the one that worries me the most, is climate change that pushes organisms to the point where they have nowhere to go. If you go to the southern tip of South Africa, for example, you will enter the Cape Province, the Cape Botanical Province, where all kinds of wonderful flowers bloom. Uh, proteas, for example, come from that Cape Province, and there are many, many other unique kinds of flowers that are found nowhere else in the world, many different plants. Now, as Africa heats up, those plants have nowhere to go because the Cape Province will get hotter and the plants have nowhere to go except the Southern Ocean and Antarctica beyond. There's nowhere for them to escape to. And this is the thing that worries me the most, the lack of escape routes as we fragment the planet and as we change its environment. So the biodiversity is threatened. Indeed. Christopher, it's striking to me how, how people who are committing their lives to the study of biology or science, for them, it's clear, climate change is a reality and, and human beings have something to do with it. 
That's right. Uh, the big problem is that the smoking gun, the absolute clear super smoking gun, has yet to appear. Right. Uh, and then it'll the be too late. It'll be too late. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. The climate has changed dramatically, you know. During the mini ice age, when uh, Louis the Fourteenth was on the throne, icebergs were spotted off the coast of Spain. Now, that was a time when things got very cold, much colder than they were uh, uh, even in recent times. So the climate does change. The question is, what are we doing to it? And that's the part that that allows people who deny the possibility that we're influencing climate, this gives them an escape clause. And I have a tough time figuring out how we can possibly convince them that, yes, we are uh, changing the climate, because it's clear we are, and I can give you lots of examples. Christopher Wills, reading through your book, it's clear this is a labor of love for you. What was your motivation in writing The Darwinian Tourist? I wanted to, first of all, put together all the stories and the wonderful things that had happened to me over the last couple of decades and bring to everybody's attention the work of all the many, many scientists who made all this possible. At the same time, I wanted to use the book as a kind of springboard for people to get curious about the world, to get more excited about the world, to really begin to follow things up. I I don't want to ram ideas down people's throats or ram facts down their throats, but I want to make them so excited about the new ideas and the new facts that are in the book that they're going to rush out and learn even more. That's what I want to see. And if I was a student at the University of California in San Diego, I would sign up for your class tomorrow. (laughs) Christopher Wells, author of Darwinian Tourist, Viewing the World Through Evolutionary Eyes. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at KPBS Radio in San Diego for their help today. Keith Stickelmeyer read today's travel haiku, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged most of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. It's all part of the Rick Steves Audio Europe package. You'll find links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.